Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We're going to take today and look at baptism from last chapter of Matthew. Very familiar verses. Uh, likely Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20. I've done this in years past, although it's been a few years uh, when we have these baptisms to preach a bit about baptism and I want to focus something on the background to it in the Old Testament, uh, the ordering of it. And uh, my hope is that you can see in God's holy, perfect, and eternal word that it is a gift of God to his church, given in love, that there is an order to it, that it has glorious meaning. Uh, And so you might be encouraged as you see baptisms today to glorify God for it. And if you haven't yet been baptized and are a believer, that you would do so. That's the hope today. So let me read these verses. This is, the context here is, of course, Jesus the Son of God, really was betrayed, really was crucified on a cross for our sins. His dead body really was put in a grave, and he really did rise from the dead. Those of you who don't yet believe this, and yet believe that all of the universe came from nothing... I don't know why you wouldn't believe that, if that's too far-fetched. It isn't. It actually happened. There's historical testimony to it. So that happened. But after he rose, he appeared over a period of days and days to hundreds and hundreds. And what we see here at the end of Matthew's gospel is his final commissioning of his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations and some specifics on how to do that. So that's where we're at. So this is just before he ascended to heaven, just after he was raised from the dead. So we always want to give particular attention when it's the last thing somebody's going to say, right? And so let's do that. Let's give our attention. I'm going to start at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Teach us, O Lord the purposes of your laws, and give us grace to observe them always. Graciously give us understanding that we may observe your laws and do so with all of our heart, for you are good and wise and holy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ came into a very religious world, and so like all religions everywhere, there are both the spiritual and the physical. 
We have a saying in our day that if you want to know why certain things are being done in politics or maybe in a business, just follow the money, right? You know what that means, right? It means that if you want to know why a certain politician is doing that, there's money there somewhere that's being made. So follow that and you'll get some understanding of why it's happening. Likewise, just as money is a main motivation for mankind, so is worship. God made us in his image. You and I, at the center of our beings, are worshipers. We're driven by the need to worship. And so just like you could say, follow the money, you could say, follow the worship. What God or gods is at the heart of what we're doing? So what God is at the heart of, let's say, the sexual immoral agenda? What God is at the heart of that? There's always a religious motivation. And along with the religious motivation, there's always physical signs of it. There's always physical, visible, tangible, religious activities associated with whatever God is at the heart of what we're doing. Which means that worship isn't only a spiritual thing. It's not just a private thing that goes on in your private heart. It's a worldwide thing that seeks to go further. No religion is content to remain isolated and private. It always seeks more. Which is why in America you are threatened with your income or threatened to be canceled if you won't go along with the God of the age. It's not enough just to be quiet, is it? Why? Because they, they want you to be a convert. They want you to worship the God that they believe is the God. And if you won't, you're a threat. You're a treasonous, rebellious worshiper of a false god. And that's because God made us in his image. We're driven with this. This is what Jesus is doing here, isn't he? Now, of course, there is only one true God. There is only one right worship. There is only one faith. Jesus isn't content to keep his band a little isolated enclave of secret society. He sends his disciples into all the world, which they do in short order, to make disciples, to call men and women and children to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And there's external signs associated, isn't there? Baptism. And so God made this world, he made a physical creation, he gave you eyes and ears and skin and touch and nerves and brain, and part of your worship of him is going to be physical. So yesterday, Amos and Miranda were married. Congratulations to the brood and passing families and all others. It was a delight. Marriage is a spiritual union between two people. God ultimately does it. When I got home, one of my daughters asked who married him, and I said, God. It's kind of a joke. It's true. God ultimately performs the wedding, just as he did with Adam and Eve. It's God who makes the two one. But along with the spiritual union, there's physical, isn't there? 
There's even signs. A ring. There's the marital bed union. There's the physical associated with the spiritual. And that spiritual union that has these physical signs points to a far greater reality, doesn't it? Marriage isn't mainly about the man and the woman. It's mainly about Christ and his church, Paul tells us at the end of Ephesians. That marriage is filled up with meaning beyond the marriage, beyond the wedding, beyond the man and the woman becoming one. That it's a sign signifying Christ's sacrifice and love for his beloved bride and his bride's now willing submission to him in everything. And so the man is to love his wife sacrificially like Christ loves the church. And the woman is to submit to her husband in everything as the church submits to Christ. And this is true in all the world, in everything. Even the heavens declare the glory of God. This physical clouds and suns and moons and stars declare something far greater than themselves. And so all of the world is a worshiping world. All of the world seeks spiritual satisfaction and something far beyond them. And all of the world was meant to communicate that to them visibly and physically and tangibly. It's glorious. It fills the world with incredible meaning and purpose and usefulness. There's much more than you see, even though what you see is glorious. And so it should come of no surprise that the worship of God, the worship of the one true triune God, has always been both spiritual and physical. We saw this right away in the garden, Adam and Eve, when they sinned. God didn't just say, I forgive your sins spiritually, did he? What did he do? What physical sign did he give them of the forgiveness of their sins? He killed animals and he skinned them. And he tanned them. And he sewed them together in garments that covered them. A physical, right? How about Cain and Abel, the first sons of Adam and Eve? Was their worship of God at all physical? Right? They gave offerings of the fruit of their labors. Physical signs signifying a relationship of worship and submission to their God and Cain was rejected. Why? Because he was cheap. <laughs> he went cheap. His worship was cheap. There's no heart attached to it. Why was Abel's accepted? Because it was genuine. It was costly. It was faithful. But it was physical, right? And the same goes throughout it. Throughout the rest of the Bible, God, who is the one true living and triune God, who requires our worship, gives us tangible physical signs that attach the greater meaning that are a part of our worship of God. And this is a good gift for us. Why? Because you're physical. And you always will be. Did you know that? You'll be raised bodily from the dead. You'll have fingers and toes and nose and all your parts in the new creation. Did you know that? 
And so God wants to communicate his word and his love and the sacrifices of his son, not just in words, but in signs that you can see and hear and taste and touch. And those aren't left up to us to creatively come up with in of ourselves. He goes into great detail in his errorless word, teaching us what the right worship of him is to be, including those physical signs. And so, of course, we're talking about baptism. Baptism is one such sign. And the roots of baptism go all the way back into the Old Testament to all of the ceremonial washings we see there. Can you think of any, kids? Can you think of any instances in the Old Testament when things were washed in preparation for worship of God? Can you think of any? Anybody? Hello? I can wait. Lunch is waiting. Kids, you got anything? Any Old Testament washings using water to get something ready for worship? Oh, come on. This is getting uncomfortable. You got something? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's water. That's not quite what I'm looking for, but water's involved there, and he's getting it ready for the people. Okay, so I'll help you, right? Let's say the priests. There was intricate washings that they had to go through in order to come and offer sacrifice. All of the instruments used in the temple had to be ritually washed constantly and cleansed. Anybody who was unclean among the people who wanted to come to worship to God had to be ritually washed, either their whole body or just parts of their body. Again and again and again, we see this, that water is signifying cleansing and the need to be pure in order to come before the holy God. But we're impure, aren't we? We're unclean. We're spiritually leprous. We don't love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love ourselves and our whims and our lusts and live to gratify that above all else. And so we can't come before God in worship. You're not allowed in of yourself. Did you know that? God will not accept your worship in of yourself on your own. He won't. You need to be cleansed. You need to be washed. You need to be cleaned up because you're dirty in sin. You have a black heart. You reject the good gifts of your Creator and any gratitude for them constantly. You love what God hates and hate what God loves. You harm the people God created in his own image in your grumbling and hurtful speech and over and over and over again you do this, right? Do we have to prove to you again the doctrine of sin in your life? And yet you think you can just come before God and offer him worship in of yourself, don't you? And yet here's baptism again reminding you 
You need to be clean. Now, the physical act itself, the water, the person baptizing you, the place you're baptized, the weather on that day, the beautiful sentimental circumstances don't cleanse you at all, do they? Can Boom Lake cleanse you? Can I cleanse you? No, it's only Jesus' blood. But there's always physical signs attached to these glorious realities, and baptism is one of those. Baptism doesn't wash away sins. Baptism is a sign that you have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and so are his child, part of his church, and can offer him worship. Abraham, in the Old Testament, was counted as forgiven and righteous prior to him observing the sign of circumcision. And so are we. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that you are forgiven of your sins and counted righteous before God, and then you take the sign. And so our relationship with God is both spiritual and physical. The two go hand in hand. Both are given by God, and both are part of the right, faithful worship of God. And baptism... Replacing circumcision is the sign given of beginning, of entering, of initiation and welcome into the church of Christ, and so separation from the world. How many of you love the world and the direction it's going? Pretty sick of it, aren't you? It's uh, hard to see what's happening here. This is why so many people resonated with that new country song that just came out. Everybody know which one I'm talking about? Right. Why? Because he's just a regular old dude protesting against what's happening in the world. And he's angry and frustrated. He doesn't want to be part of what's happening here. He wants it to be changed. He wants it to be redeemed, reclaimed, renewed. And so he sings a protest song. You can feel it. Well, baptism is something of our protest song, isn't it? It's us saying that we do not love the world, but we love the Son of God who came to redeem it. It's God's statement of our inclusion in his family and so our rejection of the world and its ways. It's our saying we would far rather suffer with Christ for the city to come than be found loving and enjoying the lusts of the flesh. It's a physical sign of the spiritual reality that we love God more than our own lives. And so we see here in Matthew 28, this Savior who cleanses us from our sin, crucified and risen, instituting this physical sign and seal of our faith in Him, of our forgiveness of sins in Him, of our washing in His blood and our inclusion in His church. Again, consider the timing here, which tells you of its importance. I've noted many times when we're doing the Lord's Supper that because it was the last thing he did before he died, that gives it great prominence. 
Well, here's the first thing and the last thing he does before he ascends to the, heaven, to the right hand of the Father, institutes the ordinance of baptism. He institutes a physical ceremony as a sign of the beginning of our faith and the entrance to his church that we are no longer dead in sin but alive with him and that gives it great purpose and emphasis. And yet, we often treat baptism as not that important. We think because it's a physical sign, it's not important as the spiritual stuff. How many of you enjoy it when you're young children? Now, when your kids get teens, this question becomes much more legitimate, though it should be done respectfully. How many of you like it when your five-year-old continually asks you why? Because it's a really dumb question. Here you have a, a parent who gave you life, who cares more for your life than any other human being on the earth, a parent who has much more wisdom and intelligence and knowledge and is committed to your good, telling you to do something, and the first thing out of your mouth is, why? (laughs) And yet, don't we do this with God constantly? Why baptism? Who cares? Jesus said it. Isn't that enough? The Lord of heaven and earth, the one who came down and took on our flesh and suffered and bled and died for our sins, is telling you to be baptized. And the first question you have is, why? And don't we do this with many other things? So baptism then, if we read rightly here, after we become a disciple, is our first step of obedience to him as Lord. It's a sign of our inclusion in his church, and it's a sign that we want to live with him as our Lord. And so a new disciple, wanting to know how to please their Lord, looks at here and says, well, the first thing is baptism, and so we don't say, why? We say, okay. And that, that should become the pattern of our lives. This is what children should grow up learning in their households. Yes, Mom. Yes, Dad. Because that's what we do to our Heavenly Father. Yes, Father. If you say it, I want to do it. I don't want to have questions about it. Because you're wise and good and holy and righteous and didn't withhold your only son, but gladly spent it for me. So yeah, I'll do it. At least out of fear, because you're God and I'm not. You're creator and I'm creature. I'll do it. You wrote the manual, like, This is what Jesus is doing here. And not only that, it's not only the first step of baptism, it's a naming thing. You're not only baptized, you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're taking upon yourself, he is placing upon you his revealed, holy, triune name. And so like all of the physical signs and seals, they're gifts God given to his beloved people to be done in faith, Showing, declaring to us by the Holy Spirit and to each other that we belong to Jesus. Again, just to make sure that you're hearing me clearly, 
Baptism is absolutely required, right? It's not saving itself, but it is required of a saved one. Everybody agree there? For whatever reason, in our carnal fallen thinking, we think that if it isn't 100% essential to our salvation, then it's optional. Is obeying God's law to fornication optional? Do you know that fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God? That the Bible says that? Did you know that? Ongoing unrepentant disobedience will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is obedience to Jesus optional? We in the church actually think it is. We think obedience to Jesus is optional. Because I prayed a prayer and I accepted Jesus into my heart. And so my obedience is optional. That isn't at all the testimony of Scripture. There's warning after warning after warning in the Bible that if we go on in our old ways, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Doesn't that include baptism? And even more so because it's one of the two ordinances instituted by Christ. And I'm not saying that if you're unbaptized, you will go to hell just because of that fact. What I'm saying is that if you're unbaptized in disobedience to Jesus, and that is the record of your life, you should not be deceived into thinking you know his grace. So there's this order here. Baptism has always followed becoming a disciple. We see this throughout the New Testament. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Jesus said, Go therefore make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So you see this order. You're made a disciple, you come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you're baptized, and then you go on to a life of repentance and growing faith and obedience to everything Jesus has said. That then is the order we see in the rest of the Bible. So in Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of the church in Jerusalem, Peter and the apostles, Particularly Peter here are preaching the gospel. So Peter brings the law of God to bear on the hearers saying that they crucified. Look at verse 36. Jesus whom you crucified. They committed murder against the Son of God. In verse 37, they're cut to the heart. And they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? What does Peter say in verse 38? Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Ghost. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls himself. Then he said, in verse 40, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And there's this wonderful note in verse 41. For those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So see two things here. You see the order. The gospel is preached. It is received with faith and repentance. And then they're baptized. That's the order. And then see verse 41. They're added. Added to what? What's the context here? They're added to the church. 
in Jerusalem, a local church. The first church. So baptism is an entrance sign, isn't it? Baptism has always been, because of Christ's word, the sign marking the entrance into Christ's church. Now again, baptism itself doesn't save you. I'm going to keep saying this. Baptism itself and the water and the person baptizing you and all of that aren't actually itself the saving thing. This is why we don't like the word sacrament. How many of you kind of cringe when you hear that word? Because sacrament, that word is associated with Roman Catholicism, which is associated with baptism actually being the thing when you're a baby that makes you a new creation in Christ and forgives your sins. And so if you die without being baptized, you're still in your original sin and going to go to hell just because of the baptism. And so we don't like that word anymore. But that's not true of baptism, is it? The thief on the cross died without being baptized and was promised to be at the, in, the, in the glory, in the kingdom with Christ that day. But I am saying that baptism as a sign given by our crucified and resurrection Lord isn't arbitrary, but marks the entrance and the beginning of our new life in Christ. It's the physical, external, spiritual sign of the beginning of your life in Christ. All right, so you've heard this illustration before, I think. Have you ever eaten at a house that you didn't first enter into? That ever happened to you? No? Have you ever sat by a fire warming yourself around family and friends in a house that you didn't enter yet? Doesn't make any sense, does it? So there is this ordering within the Bible of our life in Christ that does begin with coming to see your great need for Christ because of your sinfulness. Repentance and belief in Jesus Christ who alone saves us from our sins and is our acceptance with our Father in heaven. And then what? Baptism. The entrance. The sign of walking through the door. And then what? Well, you enjoy all the pleasures of being in his household. You get to sit at his table and eat with him. You enjoy the fellowship around the fire with all of your family. You get to go lay your head to rest in one of the beds made specifically for you, finding great comfort in our Father. You get to grow up in his house to become more mature and more useful and more helpful. You do more chores. You get more responsibility. You might even get to pray before the meal, eventually. And so baptism is the sign of this. You've heard the name Andrew Clavin, right? He is Jewish, and he became Christian. After he became Christian, he was praying to God, what do I do next? You know what God told him? You need to be baptized. <laughs> and he was. We have some young Children up here who have grown up in Christian homes and grown up in this church who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and they need to be baptized. We have an adult who recently came to faith in Christ and he's going to be baptized. Why? Because that's what Jesus tells us to do in faith. The final words of our Lord in this commissioning 
deal with our ongoing discipleship. First, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is, we need to live our lives in light of our baptism. Christianity is a life of repentance. It's a life of growing obedience. But it is with the promise of his presence. Now, Jesus said at the end of this commissioning, go make disciples, baptizing them in the triune name, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I can't help but think that Jesus here is also thinking of his own baptism and the presence of God there. You do remember that. This very, very, very sweet, the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. God's presence, the Spirit coming down in the form of a pure dove, the presence of God there with His Son. And so Jesus is saying to His disciples, to His brothers and sisters, be baptized in the triune name, live your life in growing obedience, and I am with you to the very end of the age. And so, there's a saying that Christians sometimes say, remember your baptism. We don't do that because baptism is that point in time when our sins are washed away. We do that because it's a memory point. It's a sign signifying the reality that we belong to God and been made part of His church, that His Holy Spirit does indwell us that we have been cleansed of our sins, that we have made a commitment to follow Christ's teaching, no matter the cost. Why? Because God is with us. Because His Spirit will never leave us nor forsake us. So children, those of you particularly being baptized today, I'm very proud of you. It's very exciting. I'm glad that you're exercising this faith. And one of the things that pastors do is have fear. They're just a kid. What if they don't know what they need to know? How do you know how their life is going to turn out? And you know what pastors do when they're doing that kind of stuff? They say, just be quiet. Just, just, Jesus said to welcome the children. If they profess faith in Christ, then they should be baptized. So just be quiet. Don't doubt. Kids, I do want you to know, just be careful. Baptism is a big deal. It's not something you should do just because their friends are doing it. Although that might be a beginning motivation for it. It's okay. But don't do it just because of that. And kids, it is something God is doing to you, chiefly. God saves us. God forgives our sins. God fills us with his spirit. God makes all of his promises and he keeps them. And so remember that. But you're also saying something in your baptism, aren't you, children? You know what you're saying in your baptism? That you're going to work harder and be more prayerful to obey your mom and dad right away. That's what you're saying in your baptism. It has real consequence for your life. You're saying that you want to try to be kinder and not so reactionary and mean to your siblings. That's what you're saying in your baptism. You're saying in your baptism that you want to use what God has given you to help other believers in your local church. Even at your age. That's what you're saying in your baptism. You're saying in your baptism that when the rest of the world says left, you're going to follow Jesus. 
you're not going to do what the world says. And when you do, that you're going to own it and repent of it and work harder by faith to not do that anymore. And so kids, love Christ. Christ sacrificed himself for you. And so give him your all. That's what you're saying in your baptism. But do the little things, kids, particularly in your household towards your parents and siblings that Christ requires of you in your baptism. It has real tangible physical effects. It's not just something you do. It's something you live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gift of baptism. We thank you for giving us these signs of baptism in the Lord's Supper and filling the world with lesser but glorious signposts of your love and glory and power and judgment. And so teach us to see them. Teach us to follow you more wholeheartedly because of them. But God, teach us more and more the importance of baptism. Give us the faith to walk in these ways gladly. And God, we ask your blessing particularly on those being baptized today. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.